both glamorized and disdained in popular culture, finance is a mysterious, serious world, seemingly built on hard facts with skillful individuals creating impressive wealth and power. For most of us, it's far outside the realms of our understanding. We take the existence of the stock market for granted and get on with our lives. But we should care about finance because it affects us as individuals and wider society in very deep ways. My name is Jess Miles, and in this episode of the Transforming Society podcast, I'm speaking to Philip Roscoe, reader in management at the University of St Andrews, former journalist, and one of the first BBC Radio 3 New Generation thinkers. His book, How to Build a Stock Exchange, takes the market to pieces to find out how it works, exposing the unjust absurdity of this secret world, so we can understand why we deserve something better. From pigs in Chicago to Thatcher's courting of Sid the Investor to the AI algorithmic takeover. Let's find out more. Hi, Philip. Hi, how do you do? Thank you for speaking to me today. You're very welcome. A pleasure to be here. Yes, thanks. Um, so let's start with a bit of demystification. So for the lay slightly terrified of finance person like me, can you explain the stock market in one minute? In one minute. Okay, go. So uh, uh, a stock market is a place where people buy and sell stocks. That's really all it is. What's a stock? A stock is just a certificate. It could be paper. It could be digital, giving you ownership of a fraction of the future revenues of of a corporation. So all it is, it's a little claim of, of money in the future that's bought and sold. But the interesting thing is, is what you say, the stock market. And and one of the things that I argue throughout the book is that it's not the stock market. These are lots of stock markets. We should talk about a stock market. You know, you mentioned um, the the pits in Chicago, the early market in London's Exchange Alley, the old house of the London Stock Exchange closed in 1966, all these high speed algorithms. These are all individual stock markets and they all have slightly different characteristics and they do different things different things and i'm being a little bit mischievous as well because i'm using the term stock market as a sort of shorthand for the whole of finance um so we have other kinds of markets we have futures markets and 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 bond markets which function in the same kind of way but sell slightly different things and various other constructions of 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 debt and obligation and and capital and all these kind of things that are sort of crammed under this umbrella of the of the stock market so in the book, you say it's our failing that we take finance so seriously. And in because of this, we've let it get out of hand. So can you explain what you mean by this and maybe give us an example of how you lighten finance with um, is the way you tell the stories in the book is quite darkly comedic um, and does help us to make sense of it all. So the. I think it's it, it's common for for both on both sides, both enthusiasts for the for the market talk. We talk about the market. We hear about the market on the news, but also critics too talk about finance. You know, finance has done this. Finance has, has exploited people, or what have you, and and. And both parties are are guilty of making this very sort of fragmented um, collection of different worlds and institutions into a a monolithic, um, a a monolithic sort of edifice that that maybe has intentionality, that has progressed over years, that looks as if it's going somewhere and is important and all these kind of things. It's almost Uh, a being, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, 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 you know, we talk about the market said this and the market, the market said that. Um, and, and, and 
the story that 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 I want to tell or try to tell is one of of kind of accident, happenstance, um, technological change, personal projects and ambitions, and and you know political shifts and all of these kind of things that get us to to uh, uh, where we are, and and you know like as academics do, I I, I went around pre- presenting my research for quite some time, and I tried to tell the story in different ways. But what always came out was this kind of you know hodgepodge of um, of of anecdotes about heroes and villains and different characters and what have you. And after a while, it dawned on me that this is perhaps how how the story needs to be told. Yeah. So I I can give you a, a couple of examples if, if you like of 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 a kind of. Um, uh, one um, eminent and one perhaps less eminent characters. So much of much of the book, um, as you'll know, centres on the transformation of the finance in the 1980s. Because to my mind, this is when kind of every everything changed. And there's uh, a, a gentleman that turns up uh, in a book called um, Tom Wilmot. Uh, and in 1985, he sort of popped into the national consciousness as this celebrity stockbroker having published a book and how you can buy and sell over the over-the-counter markets, which is a kind of unlicensed private stock exchange run by run by uh, a broker. Um, and he'd set up his own brokerage house, which he called Harvard Securities, very nice and, and, and reassuring name, um, with a chap called uh, Mr. MJ Glickman, a Canadian. And they they did they did exactly what you see, you know, Jordan Belfort doing in the Wolf of Wall Street. They used these big public issues to sell to private investors who made some money, who started to trust them. Um, and then they started to sell them things that were less worth owning, to put it okay. politely. Yeah. Um, and not only did they sell these things, they traded them on their own on their own market. You know, so there was a there was a price you could see as an investor. You could see, oh, I've made some money and, and my portfolio is going up and all the rest of it. But really what it what it was was just the guys in in Wilmot's brokerage just putting prices up. And so they're setting the price. They're, they're setting, telling they're, the investor they're setting what that the price, price is. Exactly. Right. Yes. Um, I think you're not allowed to do this. You're certainly not allowed to do this anymore. Whether you're allowed to do it in 1985 uh, was another uh, okay. another slightly controversial matter um and uh, of course he sold his own his own company to private investors as well which made him a paper millionaire um he bought a, an eight bedroom bauhaus designed um a, a, a chalet or in the in in this in this stop road co- suburbs somewhere um he was training trade changing his secretaries once a week apparently you know it's uh, yeah one of his colleagues said something like he wants them to do instantaneous work be a hostess and and charming all at once it's difficult work or something like that he was delightful delightful character yeah and he turned up to work in a in a bright pink bentley and his kind of catchphrase was That's to say, "Very nineteen eighties, very 1980s, Yeah, his his catchphrase was say to investors, "Well, you know, if the chairman of the firm drives a Rolls, you shouldn't you shouldn't invest in it." And if anyone pointed this out to him, he'd say, "But it's a penalty. It's fine." Yeah. And of course, in in the the crash in nineteen eighty seven, all of this came unravelled. Yeah. Um, and um, you can't keep a good man down. And he uh, he 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 started up a sausage business, and he and his chauffeur were driving around in this pink Bentley, delivering sausages to 
to artisan sausages to pubs across the southeast of England and um, with a refrigerator crammed into the back. And the, 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 the city columns kind of reported on um, uh, uh, Wilmot's old banger, inevitably. Yay. And, uh, and the, of course, the, the, the coda to this is eventually in 2011, he and his sons were sent to jail for a huge, huge scam of a similar kind conducted across across Europe. Wow. Um, and the little the little final coda that I never squeezed into the book is that he turned up to to, to court um, uh, where, when he was being prosecuted for this, looking very scruffy. Uh, and he apologized that he was so badly turned out. But he said his 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 ex-wife had finally snapped and had burnt all his clothes. Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the book is full of these kinds of characters, and that's just one. And the way you tell these stories is just so engaging um and they are funny um lots of them are really really funny but kind of underneath it all like finance isn't funny at all to bring the mood down a little bit as individual mortgage paying pension holding citizens why why do we need to really care about finance in the stock market well, I, I mean, as you say, it, it, this is a funny episode with with um, Harvard. Apart from the fact that everyone lost their money, yeah. you know, which isn't which isn't funny at all. Yeah. Um, and I think he's, you know, he's an extreme example. Uh, but in in the book, I follow the the fortunes of another um, market called Offex that's set up by a very reputable um, and decent trading family. Um, with a kind of a long, a, a long history in the London Stock Exchange, um, and Offex itself becomes a venue. Um, you know, it becomes a, le- a legitimate venue with a good reputation, but it still becomes a venue for all the dot com excitement and all of the kind of things that that go on with that. And 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 you know, again, you see uh, the froth coming off the market in the early 2000s and and some people are richer and some people are, are poorer. And I guess that's my point is that the, the stock market in all its various forms becomes a kind of fulcrum for this extraction. Mm-hmm. Um, th- th- it, it tells a story about putting money into business and, and, and financing business. But, but very often it, when you look carefully, it's about taking money out in in different ways yeah so the, the privatizations you know the 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 things that were being sold were things that already um uh, belonged to to the citizens who who bought them yeah um and they bought them back and along the way um in in a sort of complicated um a story that that, that i draw out um at, at some length a lot of people became very rich or also in the 1980s, we had these kind of corporate raiders who appeared, you know, these swashbuckling business types. And they did a, a thing called a leverage buyout. They invented a thing called a leverage buyout. Yeah. Now, we, we all know what a leverage buyout is right now because Elon Musk has just done one on Twitter. Right. And it's exactly the same, the same deal. You buy a company and you pay for that sale with money that you've borrowed from the company itself where you make the company borrow money to buy itself it's this little kind of financial alchemy so if you imagine back in the 1980s we've got lots of conglomerates which are a big flabby corporations that own lots of different things that are unrelated and what have you yeah. and the the vogue suddenly changes businesses have to be like lean and focused and vertically integrated and, and what have you yeah so 
these corporations are unfashionable, which means they're cheap. Their shares are cheap. Okay. Which means that they're cheaper in the market than the um, than the actual cost of what's in in the box, right? Okay. So ah, okay. You right. see, so yep. you can buy you can buy this giant corporation um, off the market and break the bits up, and then and then sell it sell that to other people. Okay, but the only thing that's big enough to buy these corporate these these uh, corporations because they were they were huge. I mean, the classic story of of, of one of these deals is um, RJR Nabisco, and RJR made, made was America's biggest cigarette manufacturer, and Nabisco make Oreos and those other crackers. So these are two vast vast businesses joined together. Yeah, the only thing that's big enough to buy a company like that is the company itself. So you 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 take control of the company. You you get a load of debt issued to it, um, which is very expensive because it's very risky. You use that money to buy buy it back from shareholders, and then you slash oh. and burn. You have to okay, slash and burn because okay. you have to pay the debt off. And wow. um, um, and what happens then? People lose their jobs. Um, people, you know, lose their pensions. Investors are are kind of in the longer term. Uh, 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 ripped off, and and then these firms are so then focused on, on you know leanness and what have you, all these kind of things that we know like gig work and and, yeah. and the precarious economy and right. and so forth. They come out of these kind of deals, and you see that you see that's happened in in Twitter in the last in the last few weeks. This Musk yeah, yeah. Has, has used borrowed money to buy the firm. The money is borrowed by the firm. And he's he's cut the workforce from what seven eight thousand to fifteen hundred or some some something like that. I mean, it's just slash and slash and burn, um, and that's just one of kind of many examples of how the the um, uh, how the the kind of mechanisms that circle around the stock exchange ultimately come back come back to um to us and we you know we were we were talking a little bit about um gas bills and the cost of living which of course are completely in the news yeah i mean you know this is this is the tale of privatizations done 30 years ago and the embrace of a of a structure a market-based structure for providing utilities yeah that that is in, that is then interested in taking money out and paying shareholders and not investing or not um, building up infrastructure or any of any of these kind of kind of things. So we, we're in that we're kind of implicated in this just by by dint of being alive in contemporary society in many yeah. different ways. And of course, um, like the 2008 crash, that was a financial crisis, wasn't it? It, it, the was. Bankers it was. Um, and then that's what led to austerity. So then all, all these things kind of trickle down and yeah, come together. Uh, they, they, they do. And, and there's um, a, a sort of notion quite well known in, in critiques of, of finance of, of um, this idea that there's a productive economy where we make things and then there's a financial economy where we kind of do finance. Yes. And and the the idea that finance is always trying to tear itself away from the the productive economy because making things is, is is slow and heavy and risky yeah you know it's much better if you can just trade in 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 in, in financial things um, that, um, yeah sorry that was something quite important i think that i took from the book it's that shift from production um 
to this more abstract finance. And then for us as individuals as well, that means that we lose control of our labor, doesn't it? Well, that's, our, that's, yeah, that's yeah. right. So that's the, exactly what happens in the credit crisis is that, that our labor, which is, you know, committed to paying our mortgages and what have you for years and years and years, um, is somehow boxed and reboxed and reboxed again and again and again yeah. into these these highly um highly leveraged sort of you know debt debt based um um financial products that are then bought and sold and traded and and what have you so we sort of all, all our future labor is stripped of its particularity mm. being attached to to us mm. and our houses and so forth and becomes a plaything that can be kicked around by financial traders and engineers until of course it eventually goes pop and there's there's nothing left but the risk always stays with us doesn't well, it, it? it the it risk does. isn't with the investors and the traders no no yeah. absolutely not and you know and they and as well at some point that 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 sort of imaginary money makes its way back into real circulation in the form of bonuses and so forth and you you know you you yeah. do, you you construct a hundred million dollar package and you take away a bonus of ten million dollars that you 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 spend on kind of you know marble clad refrigerators or whatever mm. you spend if you've got but you buy if you've got ten million dollars and that you know and that's a direct transfer really from people with mortgages to um, to uh, people working in 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 finance, and and of course the structures are such that they exacerbate you know um, the the people who were hardest hit by this, especially in the United States, were black and immigrant communities who were sold loans that they couldn't afford yeah. um, and often didn't understand because the potential profits to be made on repackaging them were so much higher. So yeah. all of these inequalities are kind of reproduced and amplified. And the book makes really clear that these inequalities have been part of the story right from the beginning. Um, you speak about things, well, social inequality, colonialization, um, rentier capitalism, things like that. Could you could you talk just a little bit about like the more broader social issues that have kind of embedded? In, yeah. in the markets and finance. Yeah, I think what I what I try and do in the book is I try and always zoom between the abstract and the particular because I'm mm -hmm. trying to avoid these very kind of general critiques. Although I I don't disagree with them, but but it's interesting to see how these things work out. So perhaps I can tell you another little anecdote as a as a way into this. Um, I was in the uh, dot com time. In in the late nineteen nineties, early early noughties, I worked as a stocks and shares reporter. And oh, of I was course in my, you did. Yeah. I was in my early twenties, yeah. um, and I was very inexperienced, very naive, and and you know it was a it was an interesting sort of time that I reflect on, slightly complicit in all of this. Mm. But on one occasion, I I was given the mining beat to cover, um, and I thought, you know, having grown up in eighties England, I thought. I'd don't know if there is any mining anymore but of course the mining is a huge global mm. business um and the without getting too tangled up into the uh into the the minutiae of it um big mining firms don't discover mines somebody else has to do that so lots yeah. of little firms raise money on the stock market um from investors to go looking for stuff and 
these kind of people would try and get my catch my attention. So on one occasion, I was taken for for uh, lunch by a, a very sort of Tweedy ex army type, very genial. This is a great story. Who told me all yeah. these all these stories about he'd got he'd got a deal with some guys running a dredger somewhere in in the um, the upstream in the Amazon, and they were looking for diamonds, river diamonds, alluvial diamonds. Mm -hmm. um, and he told me these stories about kind of guns bandits and, uh, and and so forth and and the best one of all was the story about an anaconda uh, that had swallowed one of the workers and as he was as he you know i mean it's just it's just nonsense but as 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 the worker was going down kind of yowling presumably they all had to they, they had to stand around and wait until he'd, he'd got past the anaconda's head before they could lop its head off and fish him out you know because he was oh. he was in it was in the middle of it it's a silly story what does that story do right what does yeah. it what does it do and what does it obscure um right. and what it does is it is it it makes the investors um who of course all lost their money um it makes the investors part of a kind of continuum of prospectors you know and it's very kind of r rider haggard and and, mm. and frederick forsyth dogs of war type stuff it's yes. exciting and 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 all the rest of it all so, quite masculine and energized exactly yeah so it? yeah it separates investors from its money but it also it, it, it kind of conjures up this particular uh, political imaginary where it's completely legitimate for for you know um, uh, uh, financial speculators living in a nice house in Surrey to be scalping mineral resources yeah. from somewhere upstream in in Brazil. You know, it hides all kinds of power relations between rich people and poor people, between yeah. developed nations and and less developed nations, and it and and it. It's a very it's a very small and rather silly story, but you can see that being being reproduced over and over again in you know kind of bigger and bigger um, uh, uh, scale um, yeah. in, in 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 global finance. It distracts and, it distracts from what's actually going on from it? what's what's yeah. actually going on, uh, and and there were all sorts of examples, and uh, you know we can talk about what, one if you like, but you know the example of the uh, um, the the plantation of rubber plantations in in Malaysia in the nineteenth century, or of course the, um, the the transatlantic slave trade, which which became also a kind of banking and finance triangle. Mm, you know, so yes. the 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 slavers invented a way of of um, turning the, the the poor souls that are trapped in their in their boats. In, into uh, financial assets and the thing about yeah. financial assets is they go they go quicker they go yeah. quicker. they're clean you know they 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 don't they don't revolt when they get a chance you know there's no risk they won't get shipwrecked anything like that mm. so so the 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 liverpool slavers built a, a kind of edifice of um of of banking that turned Liverpool into one of the financial capitals of the world mm. on the basis of these 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 terrible cargoes that they were you know poor poor souls that they were that they were carrying and then this this kind of um 
trickles out you know and it starts to reshape the economies of 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 africa and it starts to reshape the economies of of the uh, american south um, yeah. where slaves were quite legitimately used as collateral for assets and other other sorts of things and yeah. of course it, it was the it provided the capital for the industrial revolution in britain so almost you know everything about the 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 modern world somehow comes from this this utterly obscene trade in financial securities on enslaved bodies yeah you open the book don't you with that um turner painting i can't yes. remember what it's called but i think it's called the kong massacre the the the, um, the painting is um slavers throwing bodies overboard or something yeah. generic but it kind of references this particular massacre the zong the zong, zong massacre zong. Yeah, and it's such a, I looked at the painting um, and it's such a, I mean, Turner is powerful anyway, but it's such a brutal kind of fiery, uh-huh. scary depiction of these slaves being um, chopped uh-huh. off the ship, isn't uh-huh. it, really? Uh-huh. And it, that kind of sums it all up in a way. Yeah, it's, it is. It's uh, it's it's a terrible, terrible, um, unsettling painting. I must I must uh, confess a debt to the historian James Welvin there, who flags that up as well in, in, in one of his his books. But I think that is a very nice. It's a nice way into the topic, and also yeah. a, a free verse poet uh, poem that then kind of tries to oh, yeah. to yeah. and 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 the thing about the poem is that it's based on a legal report, um, and when I got to the legal report, which is this very bare account of the trial. Because what, what happened, of course, is that the the slaves were thrown overboard. Um, mm. And um, they um, really, we don't know why. We don't, we don't know right. why. I mean, it's this kind of massacre of 132 mm. uh, individuals mm. over three days. We, we, don't, we don't know why this happened. Um, but what we do know is that the, the, the slavers went to court to try and extract the insurance from their insurers. Um, because yeah. again, this is this issue of, of the, uh, the asset existing in two places at once. You've got yeah. the bodies of the slaves, which have some speculative financial value, which is crystallized by the insurance. Mm-hmm. And the insurers refuse to pay. Um, right. One of our few sources for this um, is a legal report and when I got to the legal report, it turns out to be a collection of um, of legal reports that were edited by the um, by the my great grandfather's great grandfather. Oh, of course, so you there's have this the kind family, of family history, as well. history yes. tangled up with with this. Yeah, and and that's not so surprising because his father was um, a banker and. Um, an abolitionist in in Liverpool um, right. and a very you know esteemed member of the community, but of course, and there's always been a like a family hagiography of of this abolitionist ancestor, mm. but of course he was a banker, you mm. know what did he what did he bank? You know the only mm. game in town was these were these these bonds which were based on the slavers you know value that was circulating through the liverpool banks and this he made a fortune and retired at at 40 and then lost it all because he's a roscoe and they were we're all terrible with money (laughs) but um you know i can't say that when you've just written this book (laughs) (laughs) it's still a still an academic but university (laughs) press book isn't it (laughs) um so there's some interesting connections right the way through. Really interesting connections, yeah. And it all it does all tie together um, amazingly, really, in the book. I think 
what resonated most with me having read your book is that this mysterious finance market stock exchange it's a social and political thing and an ideology that we've created and that's kind of happened a bit by accident so presumably if we made it we could unmake it and we could remake it and it feels to me like one of the reasons you wanted to write this book is to kind of try and work towards that and create a new narrative um, so is this how you feel? And just to finish, like, what role do you think storytelling like yours has to play going forward? So, that, that I mean, that's the, the, the difficult question, isn't it? The, what do the, we do it, now? What do we do now? Yeah. yeah. The, um, I think <clears throat> storytelling does, does a number of things. I think one of the reasons we're in the situation that we are in with finance is because it has been very effective at storytelling itself. Um, it's had some some good allies, you know, Tom Wolfe and Michael Lewis, people people yeah. like like that, very powerful narrative voices telling us what, explaining finance, but as a particular thing, you know, elite, gender, difficult, masters of the universe, that's a yeah. phrase those two cooked so up. So well known as well, isn't it? Even I've read Tom Wolfe. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. Um, and... Um, one of the reasons for for kind of taking a, a sort of storytelling approach to unpicking finance is to try and deal with some of that some of that narrative without re reinforcing it to say look you know come on some of these guys are good and some of them are bad and some of them are incompetent and a lot of stuff just just happens and we maintain finances position all, all the time by telling and retelling these stories um and you know a kind of ferrari like the ferrari over the the, the mini budget in september for example yes, simply exactly that yeah. re reinforces that sort of status so and it's this idea that we've got to look after the markets above all else as well yeah we yeah. You, you know we have to kind of keep them keep them happy at yeah. least rather it's like having a tiger in your yeah. in your kitchen <laughs> you yeah. can't you can't do what you what you want what you can't do of course it's actually is, scarier than having a tiger in it your is kitchen, it, it's scary Area, yeah, <clears throat> what you can't do is just kind of de declare that you're not going to pay attention to the markets without fundamentally reforming the system that we're currently sitting in. Yeah, and that's what that's what everybody discovered in September. Yeah. But you know, it would be nice not to live entirely in that system. Mm. Um, it would be, I, I think, you know, it's it's pretty clear that getting out of the trouble that we're in is going to require help from every every corner yeah. um and some of that help is going to be in terms of of um financing and resourcing technological development and that kind of thing and and you, you know the financial markets built the railways for example in the in the uk and um and and there have been periods of time where great advances have, have come supported by that sector so it would be it would be good to get back to a place where finance actually did what the stock market actually did what it claimed that it did which was put money into society rather than strip it back out again so that's one of the, one of the things but also a much broader picture about you know just not having to live in this world where everything is handed over to the markets um, the markets are infallible the markets are are, are intelligent you know and, and that they shape the the polity that we live in and there's nothing that we could 
do about it and that's a very long-term project because you have to build structures mm. that um that can fill the fill the place that that the that finance stock market have kind of swollen to occupy over the last four four decades yeah and i think um your book if we can't we can't just turn away from it um we need to know about it to critique uh -huh. it uh -huh. and your book does offer a brilliant kind of step in and a way of learning um that's accessible and not scary and it it brings it off its pedestal doesn't it really uh -huh. and just flags up some ways that we can maybe re rethink it a little well, bit well i i hope so i mean there is there is nothing scary about about finance you know it's not it, it's not the kind of thing that it's painted to be it's just yeah. a an, an institutional organizational activity and, and like most organizational activities in a state of near crisis most of the time so far as i can tell it's just yeah. it's just another human human endeavor and that's really what i'm trying to um to convey throughout the book yeah thank you thank you thank you very much for speaking to me i've learned a lot a real real lot actually so that's much appreciated um more information about philip's book how to build a stock exchange is available on our website which is bristoluniversitypress.co.uk